please uh, join with me as I pray for us as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use me now in my weakness uh, to teach your word faithfully as I ought. Uh, Father, sometimes in your word there are things that just shock us a bit more than others. I feel like tonight be one, might be one of those nights, Lord. So I pray, that, I pray that you would help me teach it faithfully. I pray that you would give us hearts to receive it by faith, Lord, and help us in your word to see the glory of Christ shining through. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, the past week has been a sad reminder to me of how destructive sexual sin is in our world. Uh, For the past week, the media has been dominated uh, by discussions of alleged sexual assault and misconduct at the highest levels of our politics. Uh, And in the commentary surrounding these reports, many have been asking the question, uh, what can be done to improve the culture within government so that people are not left vulnerable to sexual predation and harassment? Uh, This week, I think, has shown us the importance of taking sexual wrongdoing seriously. Uh, Well, in our text today, we see God has something to say on this topic as well. We see that God takes very seriously sexual wrongdoing, or to use the language of our passage, sexual immorality. And we also see that God cares also about creating a safe culture within the community of his people. But it's not just safe that he's after, but holy. He wants a holy community in which his people are marked by sexual purity. And in light of the week that has just been, I think that is a good thing for us to be thinking about tonight. So what we'll do is think about God's call for holiness in sexual purity here, think about why that's actually a good thing, and what it means for our lives as followers of Jesus. Uh, For a bit of context, last week we heard how Timothy, Paul's co-worker, had been sent by Paul when he was in Athens back to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, He was sent there to make sure that they were going okay amidst the persecution they were facing, and what was the answer? Were they going well or poor? Thumbs up, that's right, they were doing well. We are told well in both faith and love, chapter 3, verse 6. But as we think about the rest of this letter over the next few weeks, it would seem that Timothy's report may have also included a few areas that perhaps needed a little bit more attention and perhaps even some correction. And one of those areas appears to be on the topic of sexual immorality. Uh, Look at how Paul starts uh, starts this new section in verse 1. As for the other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul's basically saying, you're going well, but there's one or two things uh, we need to remind you about. Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, I'm going to unpack some of those terms in just a moment, but let's not miss the big thing here. Part of God's will for the Thessalonian church, part of his will for our church here in the 5pm community, is that we pursue holiness. 
and avoid sexual immorality. Or to put it positively, that we strive for sexual purity in our individual lives as believers. So let's take a look at this uh, call by God for holiness and sexual purity. I'll explain that in just a second. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes living God's way makes a Christian feel like a complete weirdo. You're sensing where this image is coming into the picture. Sometimes, uh, Sometimes living God's way makes us feel like a complete weirdo in the wider world we live. Uh, and I think this is certainly true when it comes to the idea of living God's way in sexual purity. See, when was the last time you got in your car, turned on the radio, not Light FM, and heard a song glorifying sexual chastity? See, much like the Thessalonians in the Roman Empire, we actually live in a pretty sex-saturated world. And so to live according to God's way actually makes us feel so different sometimes, as though we're wearing a minion suit out in public. We feel like we just stand out in this department. And that's why I think the Apostle Peter uses the words he does in 1 Peter 2 verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners, exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. See, living God's way in sexual purity actually kind of brings home in a powerful way that we are like we are, foreigners and exiles in the world we live. And that is how we can feel, isn't it? We feel like sometimes we don't really fit in, like we're wearing the minion suit because it's God's kingdom we belong to now, not the world. But notice it's through living like a foreigner with respect to sexual purity that actually pleases God. You see it there again in verse 3, which we read earlier. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. God's will. See, God wants followers of Jesus to be sanctified. That's a biblical term that means set apart for God to be holy. That is to live for God and to reflect his character. Now, people are set apart for God and, and made his own when they put, first put their faith in Jesus, like we heard from Eunice tonight. Actually, when the New Testament writers speak of being sanctified, the idea is of, of us becoming more and more like Jesus, the Son of God who is the supreme example of a life pleasing to God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 puts it like this, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What that verse is saying is that sanctification is our transformation into the image of Christ, bit by bit, by the Spirit of Christ now at work within us. And God tells us that one way we we become more like Christ, that is, that we're more sanctified, is to avoid sexual immorality, verse 3. That is God's will for us. That is what pleases him. Now, I just want to park the car here for a moment, get out and have another discussion. I want to note at this point that God is not anti-sex, contrary to perhaps some popular opinion. He is our creator, He invented sex and gave it to humankind as a wonderful gift that a husband and wife can enjoy together in the relationally secure covenant of marriage. 
In fact, there's one book in the Bible, Song of Songs, that is dedicated to kind of declaring the glory and the power of sexual love in marriage. Here's just a snapshot of uh, something from Song of Songs. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks splendid wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. I'll pause there. (laughs) But you kind of get the idea and the flavour of Song of Songs, don't you? In the right context, God's word is prepared to sing about the glory of sexual intimacy. God's not against sex, but he is against the distortion of his good gift of sex and sexual desire. And this is what God is talking about here when he says sexual immorality, again in verse 3. Now, the term sexual immorality comes uh, from the Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornography from. Porneia was a catch-all term that the New Testament writers used uh, used to group in all forms of sexual sin that distort or misuse God's good gift of sex, as he has outlined it. It includes premarital sexual activity, lust of the mind, prostitution, adultery, incest, homosexual sexual activity. Now, I suspect some of the things on that list, you might think, yep, fair enough. But others you think, I'm not so sure. You know, I get that avoiding adultery is bad, but lust, the mind, in private? But see, these are all actually things that throughout the Bible, God calls his people to avoid. And here again uh, is where many of us as followers of Jesus feel like we're wearing the minion outfit. Think about how radical it would be in the eyes of some of your fellow co-workers or students to say the following statements over the water cooler. What did I do over the weekend? Well, I uploaded some software on my computer that makes it harder for me to lust after pornography. Well, my girlfriend and I, no, we won't be having sex until we're married. No, I actually haven't watched Game of Thrones because I find the sex scenes unhelpful in my walk with Jesus. You see, to live a sexually pure life is to live in counter-cultural trust and obedience to God, and that pleases him. But that kind of life is hard. It's hard when an entire world is telling you that it's right and normal to express your sexual desires in areas that God has says is wrong. I think of every sitcom you've ever watched in which premarital sex is portrayed as a normal thing under the right consensual circumstances. It's not just sitcoms. That was the message I was getting uh, when I was in high school from my teachers 20 years ago. I remember all the boys in year nine all had to participate in a sexual health week-long program called Building Blokes. The program basically assumed we're all sexually active to some degree and that that was a healthy thing so long as not too many others were getting hurt. We had to watch these horribly awkward videos produced from the 70s and have horribly awkward group discussion time. I remember sitting through that program, though, as a young Christian, still trying to work out my faith, actually just terrified. 
at the thought of how different I would need to be if I was going to keep taking Jesus seriously? Was I really prepared to trust Jesus and avoid sexual immorality, even the supposed safe kind promoted by building blokes? Can I trust Jesus enough to live his way when it seems so countercultural and hard? And maybe that's where some of you are at tonight, right? Kind of terrified by the radical obedience for sexual, uh, radical call for sexual purity and what that might mean for you as a Christian. Or perhaps you're not a Christian here with us tonight and you're just somewhat confused and possibly even annoyed by the idea that God would be so in your business about such personal matters. Well, if that's you, either one of those camps, I I want to highlight three good reasons that I see Jesus giving us in this passage as to why his followers should live sexually pure lives. The first is that Jesus says it is holy and honourable in God's eyes. The second is, is that Jesus says it values and protects others. And the third is that Jesus loves us and doesn't want us to face his judgment. So let's think about that first one. Jesus calls his followers to sexual purity because it's holy and honourable in God's eyes. Now you sort of see it come out there in verse 4 to 5. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And you see it again in verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. See, striving for sexual purity through self-control is a holy thing to do. It is to reflect the pure character of the saviour we belong to in Jesus. We should not be embarrassed about that. We should not allow Hollywood or movies like 40-year-old virgin to negatively affect our thinking about sexual purity. It is a way, it is a holy act of faithfulness to God that reflects his faithfulness to us in Jesus. And you notice the negative contrast given there, that we should not act in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Uh, The ancient Roman world was saturated with unrestrained sexual activity and much of their worship actually involved uh, sex in temple prostitution. And in God's eyes, this was shameful and wrong. But you know God, says Paul to the Thessalonians. You've turned from your idols to know the true and living God and serve him, we were told back in chapter 1. You belong to him now through faith in Jesus. He has forgiven your sin and made you holy, so be who you are. God calls us to be different from the world in which we live. Now, God is not saying deny our sexual desires but control, restrain. Our God-given sexual desire must not rule us. We must rule it. Jesus says sexual purity is a good thing because it is holy and honourable in God's eyes and it is his opinion which should truly matter to us more than Hollywood, more than school friends, more than anyone. But second... Now, the second reason that Jesus calls us to sexual purity, as we see here, is because it protects and values others. 
Uh, I don't know if you've been following the Chanel Contos story. Uh, She is the former private girl from Sydney who started an online petition on Instagram which raised awareness of the prevalence of teenage sexual assault, particularly in the private school sectors. Uh, Chanel shared her own story of abuse and now thousands of other girls have actually added their testimonies too. Uh, This story reminds us of the damaging effect of sexual sin. God calls his people to sexual purity so that others are not wronged or taken advantage of. You see it there in verse 6, don't you? Read it with me. And in this matter, the matter of sexual immorality, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. You see, people are more than objects to be used for personal gratification. We are not to take advantage of people. They are human beings made in God's image and valuable to him. Sexual sin damages people. Think of the adultery that leaves a family devastated and broken and robbed of a stable and happy home. Think of the grief that comes and the broken trust in a Christian dating couple when one or both parties start saying sexual pleasure is more important than Jesus. And never think that pornography is a simple you issue, because that affects others too. For starters, it sustains an industry in which many people, often vulnerable women, have been manipulated, exploited, objectified, and sexually and physically abused. And you see, you may not know their names, but God knows their names. And God cares about those people. And he calls us to care about them too. So before you click on a link to a pornography site, ask yourself, do I really want to be part of a loveless porn industry that damages women and men made in God's image? Or will I act in love by walking away? And like adultery, porn damages the person you're dating or married to or your future spouse. People are left devastated by the secrecy, unfaithfulness and broken trust. See, sexual immorality damages people. Sexual purity, though, builds them up. In marriage, it allows a spouse to actually feel safe and secure in his or her marriage. It prevents teenagers from having their lives messed with. Sexual purity means that people are treated with respect, protected from unrestrained lust, and actually valued from, for who they are, not what sexual pleasure they can give. And isn't that a good thing? Isn't it a wonderful thing that you can love your neighbor simply by your choice to remain self-controlled in your sexual desire? God sees that self-control and he loves it. No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. But the third reason that Jesus calls us to sexual purity is because he loves us and does not want us to face his judgment. Look at 
It's like with my kids, right? We go on a walk, went on one yesterday, and I always start the walk by saying something like, do not run or go near the road, stay here. Now, I don't tell my children to stay by my side just because I'm a killjoy who just wants to take away their fun. I tell them that because the road is seriously dangerous. And I love them and don't want them to be run over. In the same way, God loves us and does not want us to face his judgment through a resolute desire to run onto the road of sexual immorality. To reject God's word in this matter is to reject God himself. And we need to see that. Look at verse in the middle of verse 6 and following. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Because God loves you, he warns you. Now, over the past few weeks, the Christian world has been devastated and angered as we've seen one of the most renowned evangelists of our time, Ravi Zacharias, exposed as a repeat sexual offender against women working for him. Uh, This has come out all online and in the news, and this brought home to me that it's actually not enough to know God's word or, or be able to explain or defend God's word. We actually have to love it and live by it. Now, I don't know what happened here, but somehow this Christian leader became comfortable with sin. It would seem uh, that somehow he was able to justify it and live with it, and I think that shows us the power of our deceptive hearts. This is a warning to us that we cannot become so content, so comfortable with our sexual sin that we are willing to resolutely reject God's word about it. Paul here is speaking of a willful, habitual, unrepentant rejection of God. The attitude that wrongly says, Jesus, I trust you with this much of my life, but not this area, not my sex life. That's out of bounds for you and you have no claim over it. God is saying that way of thinking is rebellion against him. It's not only deluded, it will actually send you into his judgment, he warns, if you don't repent and change. Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Because God loves us, he warns us. Uh, Jesus in this passage gives us three good reasons as to why he calls his followers to live sexually pure lives. Because it's holy and honourable in God's eyes. Because it values and protects others. Because he loves us and does not want us to face his judgment. Uh, Now perhaps you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian. Uh, What do you do with all of this? Well, the answer is not simply try and be more pure to win God's favour. The first thing I'd encourage you to do is investigate the Jesus 
who gives these instructions and find out why it would be worth perhaps turning your life upside down to follow him. You need to know Jesus. Uh, It's not by avoiding sexual immorality that you're going to be saved from God, from God's wrath, but by trusting Jesus who died for your sins, not just sexual sins, but every kind of heart rebellion against God. And I think that as you actually get to know Jesus, uh, what he did for you at the cross and in his powerful resurrection, that you will actually be much better placed to trust him when he speaks on matters like this. You see, if God sent his son to die for us, that actually tells us we can trust him. But what if you're a Christian? Or maybe you've been listening tonight and thinking, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I do think I'm going okay avoiding sexual immorality. It's tough, but I'm seeing God help me make progress. If that's you, then I'd say praise God. And I join with Paul in verse 1 and say, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Keep going. I suspect there are a number of you here tonight for whom this topic just brings up a level of grief. So I just want to conclude this talk by speaking to a few groups of people listening tonight, and I want to show you how Jesus is actually God's mercy to a world messed up by sexual sin. So to those of you feeling wronged by sexual sin, who have been sinned against, you need to know that Jesus judges That's what this passage tells us. The Lord will punish, bring to account all those who commit such sins, verse 8. So if you've been sexually sinned against, used, abused, cheated on, assaulted, harassed, you can be sure Jesus will punish the sin. God will punish the sin of your offender, either at the cross through the offender's repentance or on the final day of judgment when that person has to stand before the all-seeing and all-knowing God. You see, as good as our justice systems might be, and we should use them, they can never guarantee that level of justice. Uh, To those of you feeling guilty, you need to know Jesus saves. And that's actually the good news of Christianity that we have real hope of forgiveness, even of sexual sin through faith in Jesus. He died for our sins, rose again to life, and will rescue us from the wrath of God on that great day of judgment if we trust him. Paul's already said that back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Jesus, he says, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So if the guilt of past or perhaps present sexual sin is plaguing you, You need to remember, you have a rescuer. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So cry out to Jesus, confess your sin to him where you need to, turn from it, and rest in the forgiveness that he has won for you at the cross. And finally, to those of you feeling helpless in sexual sin, like there's no way out, you need to remember that Jesus helps you In verse 8, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that God has given his Holy Spirit to them. Most of us know how overpowering our sexual temptation can be, and you might just think it's just so hard to avoid looking. 
It's just so hard to be godly with my girlfriend or boyfriend. We, we need to know that we, need, we know we need supernatural help when it comes to our sexual desires because they are just so strong. But praise be that Jesus doesn't leave us, us to ourselves, but gives his spirit to us. So keep asking the Holy Spirit to, make, uh, to help make you uh, keep good boundaries in dating, to stay off the computer late at night, keep asking him to help you remain faithful in your marriage. But Jesus, I think, also helps us by getting us to look forward to our future hope of new life in his new creation, where sin and struggle will be no more on that great day of everlasting glory. You see, that hope tells us that it's actually worth living Jesus' way. Now, maybe there are some of you who perhaps worry that the sexual satisfaction you long for in a healthy marriage may never actually come. Now, whether or not that's true, the truth is that trusting in Jesus guarantees you will find ultimate satisfaction. And it will be much, much better than even the best marriage could provide. In fact, Revelation, the book of Revelation, reminds us that in heaven there's actually no need for marriage. There's no marriage or sexual intimacy with one another. For we are in perfect relationship and happiness with our Saviour. All of us individually are single, yet perfectly satisfied in Jesus. So do not grow weary of trusting in Jesus, uh, trusting Jesus in sexual purity. Keep remembering that it is holy and honourable. Uh, keep remembering that God, uh, that it values and protects others. And that God loves you and does not want you to face his judgment, but see you in the glory of his eternal kingdom, where you will be forever satisfied. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we know that the war against uh, sexual immorality is strong. Uh, we often find it hard, Lord, and so we do thank you that you have given us a saviour a saviour who saves us from our sin in sexual immorality, a saviour that helps us battle that sin, and a saviour that guarantees justice where we have been sinned against. Please help us to trust Jesus. In his name, amen.